Good morning, Restoration. Uh, our sermon this morning is from Ephesians, and I'm going to be reading uh, 1.15 through 2.10. You can follow along in your Bibles, and it'll also be uh, up on the screen behind me. Let's hear the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and the depth of this passage and the height of this passage is literally immeasurable. And so, Spirit, we need your help to understand, experience, and apply this word. And so be active, we ask, in this place this morning that we might see and savor Christ, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold His glory. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Little children, you can meet your teachers in the back. And as they go, let me also remind you that in a couple of weeks, we are having our annual food drive, uh, where we will go knock on 500 plus doors right here in our community, collecting food for the Central Union Mission. And if that's just one or two of us, it's going to be a long day. And so we could use your help. So you can sign up on the app, or if you still have your program, just write your name down and come and give it to me after service, and I'll make sure it gets into the right hands. But as Dylan read for us this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, so let me invite you to turn there. And uh, as many of you know, uh, my name is Joey, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I had the opportunity, I had a sabbatical this summer. And uh, one of the things that I did while I was on sabbatical is I, we were in Atlanta and I got to spend some time at my, my parents' house. My mom and my mother-in-law are actually here this morning. Uh, but I got to spend some time. I was looking and I was in my, my parents' house and I was in the garage and I was looking for a screwdriver. Uh, I was trying to, to fix something and I was rubbing through and I pulled out one of the drawers and I didn't find a screwdriver, uh, but I did find this. Uh, this is a flask for liquor. It's not just a flask, it's my flask. My flask. My initials are etched firmly in the steel. It's beat up, it's dent. Why? Because it was used greatly by me. It was a gift to me, my first semester in college. And I saw that flask and I pulled it out. My mind began to to wander through high school and college in those early years after college. Vivid images traced and raced through my head. I retraced nights of immoral and illicit behavior. 
at times, behavior that was not just stupid and dangerous, but that was perverse and illegal. See, I didn't come to faith until I was 26. I could have fooled you. And I fooled many with my external appearances and my worldly accomplishments. But my life was marked by selfish rebellion, pride, immorality, greed, and debauchery in every sense of the word. But God, but God, nearly 14 years ago, in His sovereign grace, reached down and grabbed my soul. And so, though my mind was retracing steps, my heart began to smile. Because it reminded me that who I was is not who I am. By the grace of God, I'm not who I was. And even better, by the grace of God, I'm not yet what I will be. And so, that's what Paul is doing for us this morning in this passage. He wants us to understand who we are apart from Christ, only so that we would rejoice in Christ all the more. And so, no matter where you are this morning, maybe you you literally brought a flask in here this morning. No matter where you are, no matter what lies in your past, no matter what wreckage and rebellion, there is hope for you in Christ. And for those of you who say, I'm actually good. No, you need the grace of Christ too, friend. We all need the grace of Christ. And so as we lead into our passage, we remember what Paul has been doing in this letter. He opened up by telling us that literally every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. We've been chosen in Christ. We've been adopted in Christ. We've been redeemed in Christ. The riches of His grace have been lavished on us in Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ. In Christ, through the Spirit, we are sealed until the day of our inheritance and we acquire full possession of it. And all this is objectively true. Though it's not what we always feel. Right? We don't always feel that God is good and loving and is for us. Paul knows that. Paul knows the truth of who we are will always be greater than the reality of what we experience. And so what does Paul do? He prays. That's what we saw last week in verses 15 through 23. Paul prays that we would come to know and experience the warm, soul-stirring truth of who we are in Christ. That the truth and our reality would become closer together. That our souls would be warm toward Jesus. And so Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us that we would know, experientially know, the hope of our calling, the riches of His people, and the power of His Son. And that brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Where we have this sobering assessment of who we are apart from Christ and a stunning reality of who we are in Jesus. And so the, it's not like Paul's starting some new thought here. These truths here are meant to help us experience what he just prayed. That's what he's doing. He wants us to experience Christ. And he says, oh yeah, well, and help you, to help you do that, let me remind you about who you are apart from him and who you are in him. Remember, Ephesians, remember the seriousness of your sin that you might savor the sweetness of Christ. And there's our outline this morning. Restoration Church, remember our sin. Not the sin out there, not that. Our sin is worse than we think. That's verses 1 through 3. Restoration Church, remember God's grace is greater than we imagine. Verses 4 through 10. Restoration Church, our sin is worse than we think. Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Thanks for the transition, Paul. So we have this Christ-exalting prayer into this hard Reality. These verses are a downward spiral detailing the tragic effects of sin. 
And notice who Paul is addressing here. He starts, and you. That is, he's speaking to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. Then in verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived. Now he's including himself and all Jewish believers. But then look at the end of verse 3. What does he add? Like the rest of who? Like the rest of who? Mankind. So if you are a human, these verses apply to you. There is no escaping the reality of Paul's diagnosis of our sin, sick soul. Paul's words cut deeply. But we have to remember he's not swinging them as a sledgehammer to crush us, but as a careful physician using a scalpel to expose that he might heal. That's what Paul is doing. Paul begins by diagnosing our soul, not because he wants us to think less of ourselves, but because he wants us to think more of and enjoy Christ. Paul doesn't end with verse 3. Praise God, right? Amen? He keeps going. But it's important we don't skip these verses just to hear what tickles our ears. There is bad news before there is good news. As I read this week, the gospel stings before it makes you sing. It wounds before it heals. Or as the saint of old said, till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. See, the degree to which we understand our sin will determine the size of our gospel. There's a direct correlation between understanding my rebellion and my rejoicing in Christ. Go read Luke 7 this afternoon, friends. This is what Christ says. Because if I think my sin is shallow and my weaknesses are few, I'm only going to need a pint-sized gospel. But if I understand my sins are significant and my weaknesses are many, as deep as the Grand Canyon, well, then my gospel is going to fill the Grand Canyon. And Paul is bringing us to the edge of the canyon this morning. That we might see the depth of our sin so that our hearts might soar in praise to Christ. And, and Paul says, what is our condition about Christ? He says three things. We are dead, enslaved, and condemned. Dead, enslaved, condemned. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul is describing the pattern of behavior of Christians in Ephesus, and as he said, like the rest of mankind, before they placed their faith in Christ. Notice what it says. Once walked. That is a pattern walked once past tense. And what did they walk in? Trespasses and sins. Paul stacks these terms to show our rebellion against God is multifaceted. We cross the line. We miss the mark. We sin by what we do and by what we leave undone. We're creative, aren't we, in the ways we dismiss God's rule and diminish God's glory. Apart from Jesus, before God, we are failures and rebels, Paul says. And here's what we have to remember. Sin is not just limited to what we do. It's what we love. It's not just our actions, but our affections. Sin is not just violating God's law, but it starts with doubting God's love, which then disorders our loves. It's what happens. And this trick is as old as the garden. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, it starts in a book called Genesis, and you have the two, first two humans, Adam and, and Eve. And here's what we read. Genesis 2.16 And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice that's a very positive blessing upon mankind. God is good. He is loving. Eat whatever you want. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. Adam and Eve doubt God's love. Therefore, their loves are disordered. They curve in on self and they eat the forbidden fruit. And what's the result? In the day of eat, you shall what? Die. Sound familiar? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin brings death. Sin is like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Because it cuts you off from the source of our life and breath. See, God is the source of 
author of life. He is the giver of life. And he created every one of us in his image to know him and enjoy him forever, to have sweet fellowship with him. That's what true life is. But our rebellion separates us from God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, Isaiah 59. Or uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Our rebellion alienates us from the life of God, Paul says. And so left to ourselves, we're not just bad, we're not just weak, we're not just tired. We're dead. We might be open tombs of immorality or whitewashed tombs of good deed religiosity. But they're both dead. See, rebellion doesn't just put us in the timeout corner. It puts us in the morgue. Spiritually dead. Separated from God. Restoration church, our sins are worse than we think. Sin not only brings death, but slavery. We're enslaved by sin. Picking up in the middle of verse 2. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul says that in our sin, we're enslaved to the unholy trinity. Society, Satan, and self. Apart from Jesus... We follow the course of this world. We feel at home in this world. We're in step with the times. As the world affirms what God rejects and rejects what God affirms, we walk right along with them. In the course of this world, sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. In the course of the world, we float right along thinking we have the good life when there is no life at all. And apart from Jesus, we follow the prince of the power of the air. We are enslaved not just to things that are seen, but things that are unseen. And I get it. And where we are, enlightened Western society, we don't like to think about these things or we ignore them altogether. One of Satan's greatest tricks is to convince you that he doesn't exist at all. He doesn't just pop on Halloween with a you know, red pitchfork and little devil ears. No. He masquerades himself as an angel of light. We don't like to talk about the spiritual realm, but it doesn't make any less real. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Paul says. And again, this isn't new. Remember the garden. Who was it that tempted Adam and Eve? was Satan. The crafty deceitfulness of Satan. Did God really say? Did God really say? And the evil one's tricks haven't changed. They are tempting all of us to doubt God's love and disbelieve God's word. That's what he's doing. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that every unbeliever is possessed by Satan. It's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, left to ourselves, we are sons and daughters of disobedience. Meaning, spiritual rebellion runs deep in our genes. So we are willingly, that's key, we are willingly and happily give into the tricks of Satan. Left to ourselves, we're not fighting against them, but we're going right along with them. We think this is freedom doing what we want, when, when we want, with who we want, for however long we want, and yet that's captivity. And apart from Jesus, we live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, we're not just enslaved by our society, and we're not just tempted by a supernatural tyranny, but also by our own internal cravings. Again, 
Paul is not saying that every desire every unbeliever has is inherently sinful. He's not saying that. There are are natural desires we have for food and sleep and sex and fun and laughter. But left unchecked, these impulses easily become perverted into sinful desires. So the appetite for food becomes gluttony. The desire for romance materializes into lust and physical immorality. The quest for fun turns into substance abuse and drunkenness. The longing for approval turns into proud self-glorification at work, arrogant comparison at school, and prejudiced judgment of others. The yearning for affection results in self-indulgent attention-seeking. The aspiration to lead degenerates into abuse. Need I go on? This is where the passions of the flesh lead us. Our sin is worse than we think. I hope you feel the weight of Paul's words. We're dead. We are enslaved. And Paul's not even done. We're condemned. End of verse 3. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sobering words about every single one of us apart from Jesus. Paul says our natural disposition Our inclinations when we come into this world is to do that which is sinful by nature, by birth. And because of this, because we willingly pursue sinfulness, we're guilty before God and due to receive the judgment of God. That's what God's wrath is. God's wrath is not erratic, moody behavior and payback like an unruly boss. That's not what it is. God's wrath is his pure, settled anger against sin, his resolute, measured opposition to all evil. I'm not sure Paul could get more countercultural than what he's just said. I was talking to a brother yesterday I went out to breakfast with, and I was like, if I'm not preaching just through books of the Bible and not preaching expositionally, I'm not preaching this. I'm picking up with verse 4. There was a survey just released by a group called Ligonier and another group called Lifeway. And they they asked self-described, Bible-believing, Jesus-trusting adults in America to disagree or agree with a couple of statements. There were several of them. I'm going to give you two. Statement one, agree or disagree. Everyone sins a little, but most people are are good by nature. 52% agreed. Statement two. Agree or disagree? Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 69% disagree. So when I say this is countercultural, I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about the people in here. So given those percentages, I wonder how you would answer those questions. Maybe you think that we are naturally, actually we're pretty good. And when I say good, I'm not talking about from the world's comparison. I'm not talking about comparing ourselves horizontal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about with God vertically. Yes, we can do some good things. Nobody debates that. But at the deepest level in our hearts and our desires, what's going on? So as I mentioned, my mom is here this morning, and you can, I invite you to come up here and ask her this, but I am pretty sure she never taught me to steal, lie, cheat, hit my brothers, Abuse alcohol or any of that. Like, that didn't come from her. It's what I did naturally. And I've got two precious daughters. They are dear gifts from God, and I love them immensely. But I can assure you, I have never run around our house with a toy in my hand screaming, It's mine! It's mine! No! 
Where did that come from? If we are naturally good, why is the world filled with so much hate and racism and sexual abuse and corruption and terrorism and violent crimes? Or make, let's, let's, let's dive a little deeper. Let's get a little more personal. If you were to follow every desire and inclination you had this past week, what would happen? I'll tell you, it wouldn't go good for me. That's right. We have to, rem- we have to remember. We have to remember the Bible's assessment is that we're not naturally good. Yes, God's common grace restrains the evil we do. And yes, God's common grace even enables us to do some good. But deep down, there is radical corruption. But does that really deserve the wrath of God? Joe, I mean, that seems a little extreme, doesn't it? To say that my little finite sin incurs the infinite wrath of God, condemnation to hell. This is a fire and brimstone sermon. Are you serious, Joey? We have to remember our rebellion is not measured by the act committed, but by who it's against. I've said this several times. Try a new illustration this morning. So imagine you're in your living room and you see a cockroach crawling across the floor. And with all your might, you give it what you think it deserves. Right? You wouldn't get prosecuted, you'd you'd celebrate. Now imagine your neighbor's dog walks in. And you happen to not like dogs. And you do the same thing to the dog. Now imagine your neighbor walks in. And you do the same thing to the neighbor. What's different? It's the same exact act committed. The only difference is the value and the worth and the dignity of who it's committed against. So it is with God. He is the most valuable. He is the most worthy. He is the most honorable. And so by offending an infinite being, we incur an infinite judgment. That's why we need an eternal Savior. So friends, not trusting in Christ this morning. I hope you see the bad news. I I promise you good news is coming. But I want you to soberly assess your soul before God. And don't, you can disagree with the messenger. But just, just read what God's word is an assessment of you is. If you want to talk more about that, come find me. Ask the person who brought you. We'd love to talk more with you about this. And for us, Restoration Church, remember, remember, our sin, not their sin, our sin is worse than we think. But God. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say, but God. Turn to your other neighbor and say, but God. Amen. The dark backdrop of verses 1 through 3 only give way to the glorious light of the gospel in 4 through 10. Everything done by sin is undone by Christ. See, the gospel isn't just a little bit of good news among the bad. It makes good news out of everything. Restoration Church, remember God's grace is greater than we imagine. And what has God done in His grace? Verse 5, once we are dead in our sin, but God, but God made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in our sin, so Christ took on death for us. And he didn't just take it on, he arrested death. He defeated death. See, Jesus came into the world through a barren womb. Jesus died on a bloody cross. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. All these are places of death. And God uses them to bring forth life for all those trusting in Christ. Jesus rose from the grave 
and restores our relationship with God. And that's life. To know God, to enjoy God now and forever. This is true life, eternal life. We'll sing right after a sermon. One of my favorite songs. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Left without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested and my life began. We were once dead in sin, but God, but God made us alive together with Christ. Restoration Church, remember God's grace is greater than we imagine. Look at verse 6. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This language should sound familiar to us. It's what we just read about Christ back in chapter 1. Remember what Paul prayed? He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that he worked in Christ when, when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. And now the same exact language is used about those trusting in Christ. This is our union with Jesus. Because we are fully in Christ and Christ is fully in us, everything that's true of Christ is true of us. And so what God the Father accomplished through the Spirit in the life of Christ, God the Father has accomplished in Christ through the Spirit in us who believe. Notice the repetition here of in Christ and with Christ. Six times in this passage alone, Paul calls our attention to union with Jesus. Here's what's amazing, Christian brothers and sisters. We don't just believe in Jesus. We participate with Him. So, we are raised up with Christ. And we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's amazing. But what does it mean? Well, when you read of being, with Christ being seated in the heavenly places, in Paul's letter and throughout the New Testament, essentially two things are in view. Jesus' complete authority and completed atonement. Or we can say it this way. It's about ruling with Christ and resting in Christ. So for example, back in verse 21, where it says he seated him in his right hand, then what happens? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. That's the rule and the reign of Christ. He's seated. He has all complete authority. And then we read about his completed atonement in places like Hebrew 10. Where it says, And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the rest of Christ, the atoning work. His payment for sins is complete. There is no more work to do. He's resting. He's sitting down. It is finished. And so to be seated with Christ means to share the rule of Christ and we can rest in Christ. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Our affections, our hearts, because they're alive, are no longer captured by the lies of Satan, but the truth of the Savior. The power of sin is broken in the believer. Redemption is complete. And so when Satan speaks lies to you about your guilty past and tries to condemn you, remember you're seated with Christ. That's not just what will happen, it's what is happening. When Satan tempts you towards sin, and you, you literally feel there is no other option but to give in. You're seated with Christ. When Satan tempts you to despair by bringing up your past, your flaws, your failures, the sins you've done, the sins committed against you, remember, you're seated with Christ. He's not ashamed of you. 
Once we were enslaved. But God, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You cannot undo your past, but it does not have to define you. You are no longer under the tyranny of Satan, but share in the triumph of Christ. Beloved, God's grace is greater than we imagine. And there's more. Verse 7. God does all this. Why? So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's settled purpose is to be gracious to those who are trusting in Christ. All for His eternal glory. All for our everlasting gladness. Remember what we read in chapter 1 over and over and over? To the what? To the praise of His That's right. To the praise of His glory, which satisfies our soul. That's why God is doing this. God promises to spend the riches of His grace and kindness on you, beloved. You are a trophy of God's grace that you might be full and He might be glorified. And notice how vast these riches are. Immeasurable. Immeasurable. And how long is He going to do this? In the coming ages. How long is an age? I don't know. How many are coming? I don't know, but I know we've got them all covered. Now and forever. If Jeff Bezos were to walk in here this morning, if you don't know who he is, he's the founder and CEO of Amazon. He's worth a meager $150 billion. If he were to walk in here this morning and be like, I got a little bit of extra cash. And for the rest of your life, I just want to kind of spend, I want to spend it on you. So just go, go, go do whatever you want. I would imagine that in your mind, you would have some pretty extravagant plans. You'd begin to wander and think and, and dream about, oh, that'd be great. I think mine certainly would. But get this. The wealth of Jeff Bezos is like one grain of sand compared to the Sahara Desert of God's riches. One grain of sand compared to the Sahara Desert, immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Once you were a child of wrath, but God, but God now promises in Christ to spend eternity lavishing the riches of His grace upon you, Christian. God's grace is greater than you imagine. Once dead in sin, God made alive in Christ. Once enslaved, but God set free in Christ. Once child of wrath, now God promises to spend the riches of His grace on you in eternity. And why? Because this is the type of God He is. Do you notice how this passage speaks of the character of God? God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us? Yes, God is majestically holy, but He's also mercifully compassionate. Yes, He is the supreme lawgiver, but He is sacrificial love in Himself. This is why. Because of His great love, because of His amazing grace, because of His rich mercy, because of His immeasurable kindness. Christian, you don't have to think about what does God think about me. He tells you. You have the unwavering assurance of God's love because of who He is. This says more about God than it says about us. I heard this week that the cross shows our value. It's not true. It shows God's graciousness. Does He love us? Of course He does. But it's because of His great love. I said this the last time I preached, but I think it's worth saying again. God's love flows from who He is in His being. 
His love is not in reaction to our goodness, and it's not restricted by our badness. God loves us because he loves us. The love of God is not limited, but it's lavish. God does not love us because of the cross. There is a cross because God loves us. That order is key. God does not love us because of the cross. There is a cross because God loves us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't have to wonder if God loves you. You don't have to worry like, oh, I messed up. God doesn't love me anymore. That's not true. If we want to truly experience the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's people, the power of God's Son, we have to understand who God is. Rich in mercy, great in love, amazing in grace, immeasurable in kindness. And I praise God for you, Restoration Church. I praise God for the ways that you strive to remind each other of these truths in your counseling, in your discipling, in your accountability. So let's continue as a church to confess and to confront sin. But let's always do it with two things in mind. The character of God and two other words. But God. But God. And so... Yes, listen patiently to your brother or sister who is discouraged. And then compassionately remind them. But God. But God is rich in mercy. His kindness is immeasurable. His grace is greater than you imagine. How how do we receive this? Do we have to work really hard? Verses 8 and 9. How do we receive and enjoy the promises of these riches? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says the same thing two different ways. Positively, we are saved, that is, we receive all of God, that God offers by grace through faith. It's a gift. Negatively, it's not of our own doing. It's not a result of works. The blessings and benefits and riches of salvation come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace is God's unmerited favor, His undeserved kindness. And how do we lay hold of that grace? Through faith. But faith is not a work that saves you. Faith is only the means we lay hold of saving grace. John Calvin says it this way. Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Faith stands before God and it says, or as we'll sing, all I have is Christ. All I have. All I have is Christ. And where does this faith come from? It's a gift from God. It's necessary because apart from this life-giving grace, we are dead. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people don't try harder. We need the sweet, sovereign grace of God to speak into our spiritual lungs so we cry out in repentance and faith, trusting in Christ. Apart from this, good works are nothing but paint on a corpse. You can't save yourself and you can't add anything to your salvation. You can't add good works. You can't add baptism. You can't add church attendance. You can't add giving. You can't add anything to your salvation. Friend, I wonder if this is how you understand the Christian faith. Is this what you understand the Bible to teach? See, virtually every religion understands that we need to be saved. Buddhism tells us we need to be saved from pain and suffering by reaching nirvana. Islam tells us we need to be saved from the will of Allah and final judgment by following the five pillars. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons say you need to trust in a created version of Christ and do good works. I could go on. Friends, the difference is not that we need to be saved. Nearly everyone agrees. The difference is how. How are we saved? And at base... There's two options. We save ourselves or we have a Savior. And usually the, the thought process of saving yourself goes, goes along the lines of being good enough to earn a good future. But that's relative, isn't it? What is the standard of good? 
Whose standard do we use? God's? Yours? Mine? Mine today or ten years ago? Well, let's just, even if we can assume, we can, let's just assume that we can find that standard, whatever it is. Well, then we have to ask, well, how much good do we have to do? Like, is 51% enough? Or is it 86? Or is it kind of like the college class, you just, you're just hoping for a radical curve? Well, then what happens when you mess up? Like, do you start, do you start back all over at the beginning? See, trusting in ourself leads to insecurity because you never know where you stand. You never know where you stand with God. And here's the other thing it does. Trusting in myself means I necessarily have to judge others. Because if I want to be good, somebody else has to be bad. They have to. So if I'm trusting in myself, I have to look at others. Maybe it's others I know, maybe it's others I don't know. But I have to look at them and say, they're bad or they're at least not as good as me. This is how Christianity is fundamentally different than every other world religion that I'm aware of. Because the message of Christianity, as we saw, is not that some are good and bad, but that all are dead. And we need someone who conquered death. Wouldn't it be good news if there was someone who conquered death? Jesus is good news, isn't he? Where we fall short, Christ is perfect. Where we deserved God's wrath on the cross, Christ absorbed the divine wrath of God. And Jesus rose again, and this is good news because it tells us his payment for that sin is complete. It is sufficient to usher us back into God. See, the way back to God, salvation is not through a system of rules, but a Savior of grace. God's grace is greater than you imagine Will you come to him this morning. By grace, through faith, will you come to Christ? And when you do, that insecurity of trying to earn God's favor will be replaced by assurance. Notice what the text says. To say you will be saved, you might be saved, you hope that you're saved. No, you have been saved. It's done. It's complete. That's a perfect present. Past action with ongoing effects. It's done. The assurance is complete. But it's not a prideful assurance, but a humble assurance. So that no one will boast. See, we're humble because the gospel tells us and exposes our sin and rebellion and failure. It's what it does. This dismantles every form of pride. A prideful Christian should never exist. If you're prideful in a Christian, you don't understand the gospel. Some of us need to pursue humility more than others, but none of us should be outright proud. And we can be open and honest about our failures because we're not defined by them. Our confidence is in Christ. So we have a humble confidence. It's a humble confidence that we've been saved and God is going to spend eternity lavishing His riches on us. What more do we want? God's grace is greater than you imagine. And what happens when we receive this? We display God's goodness to those around us. Verse 10. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice the contrast between verse 1 and verse 10? Verse 10, or verse 1, what did we walk in? Disobedience, thank you. Verse 10, what are we walking in? Good works. Good works. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but true faith never remains alone. A healthy tree shows itself by producing fruit. So it is with a true Christian. We cannot separate salvation apart from works and salvation unto works any more than we can separate Christ Himself. They go together. Because the goal of our salvation is to become like Christ. Romans 8. And He's full of good works. So works are not the cause of salvation, but they are certainly the effect of salvation. And so the grace of God not only rescues, but it restores. 
Remember, God created us to know him and enjoy him and display him. And the gospel comes in and rescues us and restores us and is making us into the image of Christ, which is the image of God, that we might glorify him and display him to those around us. And so we do not pursue good works out of deficit, but out, of in, out to enjoy Christ, out of fullness in him. And so again, Paul, it, it seems like Paul's like shifting gears here. Like, wait a minute, you were just talking about salvation by grace and now you're saying get to work? He's not shifting gears. He's not adding, he's not like trying to minimize your joy. Like, I know that's good news, but let me give you some hard work to do just to keep you humble. It's not what he's doing. These good works are prepared by God so that we would be more fully, fully alive in God. These good works are one of the ways we experience the hope of our calling, the riches of God's people and the power of his son. That's what they are. And so much of these good works are spelled out in the rest of this letter. And so that's what we're going to unpack over the course of the next how many ever months it is we're going to be in this book. In the first three chapters, there's only one command in Ephesians. It's the command to remember. It's what we're doing this morning. In the second half, there's 40 plus commands. And every one of them represent a good work God prepared beforehand that we should walk in it, that we might take part in the immeasurable grace in Christ. That's what it is. And I praise God for the ways that you walk this out. I praise God for the the ways God's grace in our church not only saves, but sanctifies, not only rescues, but restores. So many of you walk in good work, and I praise God for that. May we continue as a church to work out our salvation, walking in these good works as we display God and serve others. So this passage tells us we're saved by God. We're saved from God. We're saved because of God. We're saved to God, and we're saved for God. The gospel is good news about God. That's what it is. If you walk into my office these days and you sit down at my desk, it's kind of tucked in the corner so you don't really see it the first thing you walk in, but you see this. It's now sitting on my bookshelf. Why? Because I want to remember. It's a vivid reminder that my sin is worse than I think. But oh, it leads me so much further than that. It's a reminder that God's grace is so much greater than I could ever imagine. So much greater. Once dead, now alive in Christ. Once enslaved, now free in Christ. Once a child of wrath, now a child of God who he pours out the immeasurable riches of his grace for eternity. It doesn't get any better than that. Church, let's rejoice Remember, and then let's get to work for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Father, give us grace. Give us grace, we pray. Give us grace to know you and enjoy you. Give us the grace to remember who we are apart from Christ so that we might savor Jesus all the more. Do this, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.